Hey everyone, welcome back to the Overmatch podcast. I'm your host Kevin, and with me today is uh, young Dr. Ushin McElvain. Is it Vanny or Vanny? Vanny. Vanny from Ireland. Yes. You speak Gaelic? I do, yeah. You do? Say something in Irish. Tom McKenzie Skilganish. What does that mean? I'm speaking Irish now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I mean, like, uh, yeah, no, I speak Irish, but. Uh, was that. The, was that. High school? Yeah, high that? school. Yeah, it's mandatory in high school. I, yeah, yeah, it yeah. was when I went, but it doesn't mean I learned no, it. No, no, it's a very difficult language to learn. <laughs> it and is. If you, it's a perishable skill. If you don't speak it frequently, uh, you lose it, and it's very badly taught. Uh, is it? Well, you know, if you learn Spanish, uh, like I, I used to be able to speak Spanish fluently, but that's because we did in conversational kind of stuff. You want to mm. go to the shops, you want to go to a nightclub, you learn how to speak yeah. Spanish. In Irish, they make you learn fucking poetry and mm. uh, prose and all this kind of stuff. And it's not conducive to speaking it, you know? Right. Casually. I learned French in, in the army, right? In yeah. special ops. Because we were supposed to go work in Africa. I never spoke it again. But I came out almost fluent. And I, I, I can speak some Arabic having been in the Middle East. Yeah. So I can speak more Arabic than I can Irish. And I learned Irish my whole young life because it was, it was yeah. mandatory as, yeah. and you're right and it was beaten into you literally <laughs> but it was yeah. a very difficult I can say can I go to the bathroom oh, because can I, go to yes, yeah, I yeah. can say that because you couldn't go to the bathroom unless you could say that in Irish <laughs> that's a good one to know it, it, it's, it's absolutely <laughs> necessary but you know the, the, the British in and we'll, we'll get to the subject so today we're going to talk about <laughs> Dan Breen and the Irish War of Independence so we just so people know but let's do a little uh, chit chat up front yeah. Where, where again? You grew up in Monaghan, right? You were born in Washington DC, Washington DC, and yeah. then you went back, back home, and, yeah, and you yeah. grew up in Monaghan, and uh, you're now a medical doctor in right. two countries, right? Yeah, that's right. Right, and you just took a job where it's going to be a lot of it in Ireland, and you'll come back, you'll bounce back and forth for because yeah. of the company you work for. Yeah, okay, pretty good gig. Yeah, pretty good gig if you yeah. can get it. Yeah, mm-hmm. true. Yeah, yeah. So you, you, when you went back and lived in Ireland, did, you hadn't been back here at all until you came here like a year ago. Is that uh, correct? No, I mean, I, we'd, we'd go back and visit friends that my parents had yeah. in Washington, D.C. Yeah. But that was about it. We wouldn't we wouldn't have lived out here at any right. point, you know? Right, you know? And I, when you were like a youngster, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. When did you come back? Uh, was it about a year ago? When, yeah, about, yeah. Yeah, it came a year ago, yeah. Yeah, yeah and yeah. you walked into to few, the office few, yeah, and you're yeah. like, hey... <laughs> I'm an Irish guy. Yeah, uh, yeah. Anyway, so <laughs> what, what what is your impression right now? What's the big misunderstanding in Ireland about America and about how things work out here? Or is there any? Maybe there isn't any because of the internet and all that. I think... This creaky chair. It's, it's, hard, it's hard to say. I mean, I think that a lot of people sort of see America like America saw itself in the 90s, like, you know? Mm-hmm. It's hard to say. I mean, like, I don't know how well Irish people know all the United States because America is like a multitude of countries smashed into one. Yeah. I mean, the South is very different from the North. Mm-hmm. East is very different from the West. Yeah. But if your media, social media is coming predominantly from the Northeast, you're going to have a very do- different view of what America is. Yeah. You know, just it's different cultures. You know, yeah. I, I would say a lot of people from Ireland would be very surprised when they come out to North Carolina. Mm. You know, people here are very, very friendly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, have, I have to say I'm, I'm very fortunate for the people I met. Mm-hmm. And, I'm, and particularly the Irish Americans I met. They were mm. genuinely very friendly to me. And yeah. they helped me an awful lot mm-hmm. along the way. Like. I, I think Americans, from my point, are very friendly people for the yeah. most part. Of course, there's problems and there's crime and there's all kinds of... Because there's yeah. 330 million people in yeah. this country, right? And there's a mel- mental health crisis going on because we want to we want to pander to everybody who gets offended by everything. And it's a doomsday scenario because mm. it will destroy countries and has done in the past. Yeah. Anyway, so you came out here. 
we did a little, you did a little bit of training working for me and yeah. we did a little bit of long range shooting. We did, yeah. And you, what did you buy? You bought a rifle? Yeah, I bought a Ruger Precision in it's chambered in 6.5 Creedmoor. Okay. Uh, That's a fairly decent gun for yeah. a fairly decent price. Yeah. And it's a great entry level gun. It, yeah. it just is. It shoots well, right? It does. Yeah. yeah. And you're, I'm consistently hitting out to, when I, when I fix the, uh, yeah, yeah. fix a few things on it, yeah. um, consistently mm-hmm. hitting out past 800 meters yeah. on it. Very accurately, you know. Mm-hmm. So I'm happy What's the that. longest shot you've taken and hit? Uh, one thousand one hundred fifty-nine meters. Okay, right. And consistently, you bought yeah, you bought a, a vortex scope. Did vortex you? scope, yeah. uh, razor. Okay. Yeah. Uh, what's the power on it? Can't remember off the top of my head. Okay. Uh, Gen two razor vortex. It's, is it like four to sixteen or four to sixteen? Four to sixteen. Right, yes. Okay. Um, and then you have a Kestrel. Kestrel. Plus the calculator. And so when you and you bought a you bought a rangefinder too. Bought a rangefinder. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. You bought a Sig Kilo, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Pretty decent rangefinder for what you're what you're looking for. Yeah, yeah. So basically, the first time you sat through a ballistics class yeah. and where you are now, is it is it as complicated? Does it seem as complicated as it did that first time when you got that fire hose of information? No, but it's the same with land nav. I mean, like the first time you're trying to learn a new language mm-hmm. and you're just, when you put that into practice and you actually go out, do land nav or go out behind the scope, mm. it, it starts making sense. Yeah. Like things people talk about, mm-hmm. mirage and so on. And when you actually see mirage, you're like, oh, that's what they're talking about. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Figuring yeah. things out like mm-hmm. that, you know? I'm always trying to find new ways to get information across. I've started doing Zoom classes with people for precision rifle and ballistics and stuff like mm-hmm. that. And it's obviously easier when you're in the same room and you're on a whiteboard and you can do the whole thing and you're trying to show minutes of angle and mills and all that kind of stuff. So I'm always trying to figure out new ways to teach things that, you know, across that medium, across that that, that online medium where you're trying to teach the difference between the first focal plane and second focal plane and all that kind of stuff. But it's always good to get the perspective from somebody who who has learned it recently and going, I was super confused about this, (laughs) but now it makes sense. Is there anything that you can think of that you were... Because you, you sat through the ballistics class I did. I think you sat through it once or twice. And then we went out to the range a couple of times. Yeah. And then um, a lot of stuff you just went out and figured out yourself once yeah. you had that base level of knowledge. Is there anything that you, you remember being in the class and you were like, I have no idea. I'm a doctor. I thought I was smart. <laughs> but I have no, this guy in front of me has a GED. And, uh, yeah, look, you know. when, when you did land nav initially, I was like, there's another north? Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> there's three of them yeah, why wouldn't there be yeah, yeah. exactly yeah. Yeah. No, that's uh, funny no um, I think it was actually throwing muzzle velocity and I was like uh, how do I fucking do this yeah uh, And but once you got in the, behind the Kestrel and you're like this makes sense now yeah you know yeah. Uh, yeah. throwing muzzle velocity uh, obviously I was thinking I could just it, it, it's just when you're physically doing it, it just makes it a lot more sense. Right, yeah, you know? yeah. And you can see the results. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it, you're taking a tiny little projectile and you're launching it way out there at hundreds and hundreds of meters and hitting a small target. Mm. There's a lot to it, but it's super satisfying and it's very addictive. It is, yeah. <laughs> very expensive too. It be. is, it, it uh, can be, yep, yeah. it absolutely can be. So yeah. you're going back to Ireland in a couple of weeks. Yeah. And... Uh, you may or may not be able to bring your your bolt action rifle. I, I, Laws are pretty strict there. They are. Yeah, yeah. but uh, I'm going to try and talk it over with the guards and mm-hmm. the police back in Ireland. Yeah. And uh, I'm going to see. It's a bolt gun, so I think I have a mm. good chance. I'm going to try. I'm going to keep it in storage here. Talk to the guards. Try and the, get my license over there and try and get shipped. Right. Over. Yeah. 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 I, I think you might be able to. There, there's. I know there is 
PRS shooting competitions in Ireland. Yeah. I would reach out to those guys. Maybe they would help you too. Yeah. The only thing is, like, um, some things just look scary. You know, certain guns look scary. Mm-hmm. If it had a walnut stock on it, and yeah. they'd say, oh, it looks fine. But yeah. it's kind of tactical looking, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. you know, mm. and okay. 6.5 Creedmoor, new round, people might be concerned about that. I'm not sure. I don't know either. Yeah. yeah. So, good luck. Let us know yeah. how it goes. All right. What are we talking about today? Uh, we're talking about Dan Breen, the man who fought, shot the. Uh, First shots of the uh, war of in, uh, Irish independence. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So give us like a, a background kind of thing on what led up to that and, yeah. and why, just in case people haven't listened to any of the other videos we've done, Irish history is very complex yeah. <laughs> and we're, we're talking about a very small uh, timeline here. But just just why the revolution started and kind of the, the path it took initially yeah. and, and, you know, what led to the War of Independence? Yeah, so, I mean, uh, even Irish people would be kind of lost in this topic because most people think our uprising in 1916, Eastern 1916, where it was kind of, if you're going to give an example in our, uh, in, in American example, it's kind of like the Alamo, like the last stand. Yeah, or the Tet Offensive, Tet Offensive almost, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. very much like that. Yeah. Most people think right after that War of Independence happened, we fought the British, kicked them out of most of the, par- most of the country, and there was partition, civil war, mm-hmm. etc., but uh, in reality, right after 916, vast majority, uh, sorry, I should uh, put this into context here. During 916, the reason why, one of the reasons why it was a uh, military failure mm-hmm. was because... Just, just we go back a step. Yeah. 1916, the, the IRA basically decided to have a set-piece battle. Yeah. Instead of a guerrilla warfare tactic, mm. we're going to take over the major buildings in Dublin and we're going to stand and fight the British toe-to-toe. Not a great strategy. No. Uh, and it, it, it almost came out of necessity because Owen McNeil... So the person really behind the, the rising, the, the mind behind it was the IRB, the, the intelligence agency running this whole thing, kind of like the Irish version of the CIA. Mm-hmm. So you had Thomas Clark, who was the mind behind it, his second-in-command, Sean McDermott, both top IRB men in, in Ireland at the time. But like all shadowy organisations, they needed a front man. To, uh, to take the hit, so to mm-hmm. speak. So they got Owen McNeil to do that, a very respectable academic. Now, Owen McNeil, unfortunately, you know, kind of uh, dropped the ball on this one. He got panicked, and he sent it. He, he thought he actually had control. In reality, he was just a figurehead, but he put out a countermand. Uh, so instead of getting everybody from across the country joining up in arms, oh. only people in Dublin did. Right. Uh, and as a result, it was almost predestined to be a failure. Mm. At that point, it shifted from being a realistic nationwide uprising to being what Porg Pierce, one of the leaders uh, during this period of time, uh, called a blood sacrifice. Mm. Basically saying, we're going to die, but we're going to galvanize a whole generation to rise up. Right. Yeah. Um, so I, I assume part of the strategy was that the British were kind of distracted by World War One. Yeah. Too, right? yeah. I, yeah. I, I think a very common phrase in Irish Republican militarism is... England's difficulty is Ireland's opportunity. Right. Uh, so, you know, and, you know, tell you what, best time to hit someone is when their back's turned, you know? Yeah, yeah. So that was the idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also there was public support because at the time there was this push for general conscription of Irish youths. Uh, oh, to fight in, to fight in World, World War One. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, if you look at some of the posters at the time, it just shows you how bleak it was living in Ireland at the time. Mm. We, had, uh, we had slums comparable to Calcutta at the time in, yeah. in the Liberties mm-hmm. um, in around Rotunda all those areas in, in, in north inner city Dublin 
and they used to say uh, you have a higher chance of surviving in the Somme than you do f- uh, in the streets of Dublin wow. uh, due to consumption yeah. and TB. Yeah. And so Why would you want to go fight for an occupying force that, you know, where you're at? A second-class citizen at best, yeah, and yeah. they're like, "Hey, come and fight for this cause." Like, why would you want to do that? And a lot of people say, "How come Ireland didn't join mm. the war in uh, a fight in World War One, World War Two, right?" And obviously, in World War One, they were still part of England technically, yeah. and in World War Two, they saw it as helping England, yeah. who they freaking hated and who occupied and, and subjugated the. the the population for 900 years you know yeah. and, and I think that was the general consensus yeah and I mean like the the Irish people who did fight in World War One majority of them came under the the idea that James Connolly coined the term uh, conscription by starvation like yeah. you know you didn't really have a choice you have a family to feed you're going to go off and serve in British Army yeah yeah and a lot of them a lot of them even though Ireland was independent at the time fought in World War Two yeah in the British Army yeah. right a lot of them so that's 1916 sorry go ahead so that that Easter Rising was big massive Tet offensive mm. type offensive that yeah. got hammered and put down hard by the yeah. British government so I mean like uh, at the end of it you had uh, I think it was around maybe 600 British troops killed the, you're, you're dealing with uh, a thousand British troops a couple of hundred Irish irregulars mm-hmm. you know and uh, basically the leaders were rounded up and executed mm-hmm. the, it galvanized an entire generation but the people in and around 916 like the regular soldiers including people like Michael Collins who was fairly low down on the totem pole with the guards, rank in the IRA or the Irish Volunteers, but was very high up in the IRB, mm. was arrested. And they were all sent off to an internment camp in Frongoch in Wales. Mm. And they were there for, for one or two years. Now, during this period of time, you know, same throughout Irish history, right? Uh, throughout at least a revolutionary period all the way up into the Troubles, it's a, always a choice between constitutional politics and physical force violence. And they, uh, during this period of time after the internment of these soldiers, right, the politicians in Sinn Féin, which would be seen as the political wing of the IRA at that time as well, had a landslide victory politically. So they had a, a 1918 general election. This two years after the rising, mm-hmm. 85% of the country vote for Ireland to succeed away from Britain. Now, <laughs> the British were basically saying we're, we'll take that under advisement yeah. and just just ignored that they mm-hmm. they, they um, responded with violence mm. uh, as they do so shortly after that you have people very much they, they didn't they got the countermand order they didn't go to uh, get involved in 1916 rising they're republican minded but they're not politicians they're soldiers and they're kind of getting a little bit antsy they want to kick off this revolution mm-hmm. People like that would be uh, Dan Breen. Uh, right. Uh, there was a lot of revolutionary talk around Europe at that time, right? Yes, because yeah. in, in World War One, they poured working class, lower class in their eyes, people into the machine gun fire, right? Yeah. And slaughtered people. For, mm. Like this, this vision of young men going over the top, running into machine gun fire and getting killed in unimaginable numbers right yeah. and after that the Russian Revolution there was a lot of revolution a lot of communist talk going around at the yeah. time yeah. communism because of how it seems on the surface seemed like a good idea yeah. it turned out not to be but <laughs> a lot of revolutionary talk around that time now you also have to remember that it was a hundred and something years ago right mm. so the, the the way things were done were different right yeah. so Obviously, you know, after the 1916 Rising, before, you know, during that War of Independence, 
the British Army are pouring troops into Ireland who are combat veterans, yeah. who are very used to violence yeah. and weapons and heavy-handed tactics. And that's where like whole towns are being burned to the ground. People are being executed. That's just how things were done back there. So it was a dirty, dirty war. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. Uh, people were playing for keeps. Yeah, they absolutely were. So once it kicks off, you said Dan Breen fired the first shots. Yeah. Tell so, me about that. So Dan Breen, again, like, you know, People sort of make out Dan Breen as just a soldier and not a politician. And in some ways, that's a that's a good thing. Most politicians, by and large, it's a kind of like a dirty word. Yeah. But he, it doesn't mean he wasn't politically minded. It just meant that he wasn't an ideologue. He was a very practical kind of guy. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, Dan Breen grew up in South Tipperary uh, to a very poor family. His father died when he was about six. The mother basically reared him. And from the get-go, he sort of saw... The effect of British rule in Ireland. He was seeing his relatives being tur- turfed out of their homes, mm-hmm. uh, being forcibly evicted, and that kind of ca- causes you to, to think about where your place is in society. The, the house he grew up in, I would imagine, was something like some of the houses I've seen in Afghanistan, right? Yeah. Like thatched roof, right? Uh, stone white walls, dirt floor, yeah, a little bit of land, if any at all. Very, very like extreme poverty like no yeah. no bathroom inside outside yeah. bathroom probably no running water yeah. absolutely no electricity mm. e- extreme poverty for for the time yeah mm. again i mean that was even for the time it was extreme poverty yeah now he made very close friends with someone his next door neighbor sean tracy and sean tracy was from a very similar background but sean tracy was probably more experienced in irish language you know and and a lot of the 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 most instrumental people in the fight for Irish freedom had no real concept of uh, Gaelic history, Irish language, and so on. But it was put down. It was and put it down. Was, yeah, yeah, it was, it was um, frowned upon yeah. at, uh, or illegal, basically, yeah. to yeah. learn it, right? And it's the best way to, to wipe out a culture is just to, yeah. to ignore it, you mm-hmm. know, uh, not nurture it at all. You Where know? did these guys get their education? Because the, the education for... Irish people at the time was very, very minimal. Yeah. But you had some very educated people. Chancy, yeah. Christian brothers in yeah. Ireland. So, I mean, like, and public schooling in Ireland today, you know, I mean, it's still run predominantly by the Christian brothers, mm. like a Catholic lay organization. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of it is, you know. I, I, went, mean, to, I went to the, the, the Holy, Marist. The Marist, yeah, yeah. yeah, Uni- yeah. Uniforms, priests S- and, and civilian teachers. Yeah, yeah. I got good at fighting or defending myself because yeah. I got my ass beat a lot. Yeah. Um, yeah, they ruled with an iron fist back then. Did, yeah. Even I can't imagine what it was like a hundred years ago. Like they oh, were yeah. tough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and look, uh, some of those some Christian brothers were not fit to be teachers by mm-hmm. a long shot. But yeah. um, I would say they gave an education to like my my father's growing up from was from a social class eight, which no money. Yeah, but uh, they all got education. You know, they did. And yeah. at the time, were, were were girls being educated by nuns at that time? Yeah, it was yeah. the same kind of. Uh, it was still separate schooling for yes. women and boys. Mm-hmm. And even today, public schooling in Ireland is still boys and girls separate, usually. Is it really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 The, the, the school I went to was all boys, but it's integrated now. It's boys and girls, apparently, yeah. I heard, you know. Yeah. So so he got to know Sean Tracy? He got to know Sean Tracy, and Sean Tracy swarmed into the Irish Republican Brotherhood in 1912. Okay. So that's before the rising. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but again, these guys were drilling and training and trying to be uh, custom with arms and guerrilla warfare tactics coming up to the 916 Rising. And they, they, were, they were shocked when they heard of the countermand. They were kind of left uh, wondering what was going to happen next. Mm. And basically, they, their, their suspicions were confirmed. They, they, they were in the same line as a lot of 
of the older IRB stock that constitutional politics would never deliver Irish freedom. If British rule was being enforced by the gun, then liberty had to be enforced by the gun. I, I'm not condoning violence, but there's a lot to that. Yeah. You can talk and talk and talk, but people don't want to listen, especially back then, right? Mm. Um, did, were some of them, I would assume some of those guys in the IRB were trained in the British Army some because you, yeah. you, you would need proper military training so you don't have to make it all up again. And I assume some of the intelligence work, I, I don't know if they got that through the British but it's a good way to fight fire with fire if you're trained by your enemy, right? Yeah, very yeah, much so. Yeah. Uh, now, some of them were. Now, Dan Breen directly wasn't, mm. but he kind of formed his own form of guerrilla warfare, which was very effective. Yeah, yeah. So, and it would be utilized later on by Michael Collins. He, right. he co-adopted these people. Mm-hmm. So, Dan Breen and Sean Tracy both decided, look, the best way to start a war is to kill someone. Mm. And they chose the RIC constables. Now, RIC is the Royal Irish Constabulary. Uh, and I know a lot of people hearing this will be a bit squeamish about this, but because considering they're by definition police, but at the time you have to realize these people weren't really police. They were a quasi paramilitary organization. Mm-hmm. They were armed to the teeth. Their role was more more or less counterinsurgency rather than police work. And as Dan Breen said it himself, he says they were essentially spies in your mm. village. They knew who you were. They knew who your family were. And if they knew if you had any nationalist or Republican sympathies, mm-hmm. they, they would finger you for elimination. They probably disappeared people, I'm sure. Oh, yes. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, very hand, heavy-handed organization. Mm. Were they heavily armed back then, even, even before the violence started? They had a, a, every single police officer would have a carbine and a, and a sidearm. Yeah. Uh, that's quite a lot for the time. Yeah. They were, the, the, the fortifications they had were pretty immense for the time so as they, well. So even before the violence started, they, they, they kind of read the writing on the wall, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and also bear in mind, every generation in Ireland had some form of uprising against right. the British. Mm-hmm. This just happened to be the most successful. Right, okay. So Dan Breen, through intelligence networks, along with a, a, just a handful of other men who were just young fellas who want to have a go. They didn't really have any notion about winning, mm. but they, they thought we're going to get our pound of flesh. Mm-hmm. So... And they just wanted to kick off that war, you know, mm-hmm. kind of like if you not not uh, alluding these two, these guys two together. But if you look at later on, like Che Guevara, where he's talking about focal theory with the guards, um, guerrilla warfare, you don't mm-hmm. need all the aspects to be ready. The environment doesn't have to be completely ready for a, a guerrilla war. You just yeah. need some of them and you need to push it. Yeah, you need to light the, light the, light the spark. Right? Yeah. yeah. And then the, the reaction by the, the government will spark more. Yeah people to join right exactly. and that, that has happened throughout time it really yeah. has yeah and, and you know in this case initially that didn't work out for Dan Breen so uh, Dan Breen heard there's going to be a consignment of gelignite being transported and explosives important mm-hmm. for any kind of war so and gelignite for anyone who doesn't know is a fairly unstable form of explosive if you f- if it gets to a certain temperature Mm-hmm. Uh, it starts to sweat, and if you flick it, it can explode. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only reason I know this is because my grandfather used to be a foreman on a building site, mm. and he had access to gelignite. Now, where did he store it? He stored it in the top cupboard in a household of like 12 kids, <laughs> and my granny saw it, and it was sweating. And yeah. she was like, holy Christ, like, what the hell are you doing, Big Jimmy, you know? Yeah. So um, she I, remember, it, I yeah. remember my father telling me when he was a kid, they used to hunt with dynamite, or not hunt, fish with dynamite. <laughs> and they'd throw it in the, in the river, <laughs> and it would blow up, and all the fish would blow up. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. wow. Um, she did what any reasonable self-respecting Irish woman would do. She didn't call the cops, yeah. number one. Yeah. Number two, she flushed down the toilet. Did she? So I don't know what happened to that, but maybe oh one day God. we'll find out, you yeah, know? Yeah, uh, yeah. 
She flushed the lignite down the toilet. Toilet, yeah. I don't know where it went, but uh, oh yeah. We we well maybe we know the true. You don't cause. mess with Irish women. No, maybe we know the true cause. The Mon and Dum- yeah. Dublin bombings, like <laughs> you know, later on. But uh, um, yeah, but, like she. Uh, yeah, it's like there's a big household full of kids and it's just wow. sweating away there in the cupboard. Wow. Yeah. Damn. Big Jimmy. Damn. Yeah. Um, so you said that uh, Dan Branch fired the first shots in in the the. War of Independence. Tell, tell me about that. It was an attack, right? Yeah. So, I mean, like, his intelligence had led him to believe that six RIC men would be transporting a consignment of gelignite. Again, the gelignite would be important as an explosive, but also the importance would be killing the RIC men to kick off this war. Mm-hmm. Now, the intelligence was wrong. There was only two RIC men. Himself, Sean Tracy, Sean Hogan, and Seamus Robinson killed these two men and took the gelignite. Mm-hmm. Now, initially, you'd think that might rally people around the cause, but it had the opposite effect. A, um, a lot of the people who had basically avoided being captured in Dublin, who were members of the IRB, but more the political-minded people from, say, for example, the well-off urban areas of Dublin, mm-hmm. and who were more keen on a political settlement, thought that this was uh, dragging the cause back. Mm. So... Essentially, they, they wanted to persuade, persuade these guys to go off to America and just leave the scene. Mm-hmm. Dan Breen did not want that. And there was one guy in the IRB who'd just gotten out of Frongok prison camp who agreed with Dan Breen. That guy was Michael Collins. Mm. Michael it's, Con- it's funny how you, you take all these guys, right, and you put them into internment. Yeah. And it was the same in the early 70s when you put Jerry Adams and all those guys into an internment camp. They have nothing to do all day but talk about the path forward, mm. strategize and build a plan like it, it, it'd be almost better to put them in solitary confinement because they have nothing to do but strategize all and that's what happened in yeah. Wales obviously in that internment camp all these guys got together and they 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 fed off each other mm-hmm. and they built strategies moving forward on that attack was that I think that was an attack on a police station was it uh, they were actually transporting it from uh, to oh a yeah, police yeah, station. yeah yeah so yeah so they got them on a road okay you gotta be careful where your bullets go man you yeah. hit that gelignite yeah oh yeah yeah well they um. These two fellows were, were killed. These guys, and Dan Breen basically was on the run. Essentially, Mike Collins saw this guy as, uh, you know, having the right idea. Mike Collins was what you describe as not only dangerous, but capable, you know? Right. So lethally effective. I, I, there's there's mixed opinions of Michael Collins, right? Mm-hmm. Some people think he was he was not really a leader, and some people think he was not really a fighter. He was more of an intelligence guy. A lot of people think he sold the, the, the North out when he... When he but... There has to be a middle ground, right? You have yeah. to be able to play like extreme violence with no kind of path, political path. It's not going to work. And, and probably vice versa, right? Yeah. He seemed to have a good middle ground approach to everything from my, yeah. from my, you yeah. know. I, I mean, I, I think with Collins, he was kind of like Dan Breen in some ways. Now, Dan Breen took the opposite side. He took the Republican side. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we'll war. get to that later on. But he was friends with Collins early on. Very close. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Very, very close. So... For ex- to be honest, though, I mean, I, I, looking at Collins and just to focus on him for a second, I think he was a great man for practicality. Yeah. Uh, I mean, like Collins, we can only speculate what would have happened if he had survived. Mm-hmm. But Collins, you know, was he took part in 1916. Mm-hmm. He certainly got involved in the fighting there. Mm-hmm. But 
he was most effective as director of intelligence. Right. Yeah. Um, and he was, which he was very good at. Very good at. Yeah. And that's what you need in, in urban guerrilla warfare. You Absolutely. Need intelligence. intelligence wins any battlefield, right? Yeah. Let's go back to Dan Breen because there's a video and then we'll splice it in here of him talking in the 1960s being interviewed. It's on yeah. YouTube where he's basically, I'm paraphrasing now, he said, people ask me, and he was obviously a tough man, and he probably put a lot of people down. Yeah. People ask me if I have any regrets about killing people, and I have no regrets, no. you know. In guerrilla warfare, there's no such thing as kid gloves. You've got to kill, and you can't leave anyone alive after, because if you do, you're going to get your innocent people executed. You murder so-and-so and so-and-so. Yes, I killed him. I said, all killing is murder to me. I make no apologies, apologies for killing. And the only real thing I was ever sorry was the number I escaped. I don't make any bones about killing. Anyone that comes into my house or my country and tries to take over by force, I'm going to kill him and I'll use any and every means to do it. And I'm saying that now in the winter of my life. I've met a week, an hour to live or a day to live or a year, and I am not one bit sorry for it. To any man or God. Just a tough, tough man. But you were you were telling me that somebody from the Royal College of Surgeons did the autopsy on him when yeah. he died. He died in 1969, right? 1969, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, like, um, an instructor of mine, the College of Surgeons, his, his mentor did an autopsy on Dan Breen when he died. Right. And he pulled out so much lead out of that guy. Yeah. I mean, his spine had elements of lead stuck in it from, from gunshot wounds. I would say that would have mostly happened from an ambush, which we'll go into a little bit later yeah. on. Yeah. But there is, let me just get this in my head here. There was at least three times he was supposedly fatally wounded and managed to pull through. Yeah. And bear in mind, medicine at the time wasn't great. Especially if you're on the run. Yeah. So you basically had a doctor probably come who was sympathetic to the cause, mm. either pull the bullet out or leave it in it left, and it was patch in. you up. Yeah, right? it was left in. Put some put some disinfectant in there yeah. and walk it off. Yeah. Drink a whiskey and walk it off, yeah. right? Yeah. Just hard, hard men, you know? Yeah. I'd love to see the autopsy report on him. Oh, and, yeah. And see how many bullets they pull out, shrapnel and all yeah, kinds of stuff. Yeah. He lived till he was 75. Was he? He's a tough, yeah. tough individual. Hard life, man. Yeah. All right. So they took the gelignite and they were, they were kind of, people didn't want this violence. They probably saw what was coming, right? And they were like, yeah. yeah did, okay. the, did the British overreact? Well, yeah. So, I mean, they put a huge bounty on his head. Uh, in today's money, it'd be around 60000 mm-hmm. on his head. And that's in an impoverished country in June. Yeah. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money, yeah. Now, a, um, they also burnt down his family home, yeah. uh, basically made his mother destitute, all this kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Now, they're on the run. And just because the uh, those more politically-minded IRB people, uh, people in Sinn Féin, wanted to go down the political route, even though at this time, as we can see, even though they got an, uh, an overwhelming majority to politically disengage from Britain, Mm-hmm. The British weren't taking that under consideration. Yeah. They didn't really care. So Michael Collins, you know, more or less saw his opportunity. He realized that a war was coming. A war had to be fought if they were going to achieve uh, a republic. And he co-opted people like Dan Breen and his colleagues, Sean Tracy, Seamus Robinson and Sean Hogan. Mm -hmm. Now, while they're on the run, Sean Hogan gets arrested. Now, it's because Sean Hogan was young, inexperienced, he went off to see his girlfriend. Big mistake. Mm-hmm. Uh, were they watching her? Or, oh, they're watching yeah. everybody. Yeah. So they're, they're, bear in mind, uh, Tipperary is on the cusp of being under total martial law at this point. Mm-hmm. So they were watching her mother's house. He was dropping her back off to the mother's house when the, the mother alerted him that the police were after him. He grabbed his gun, jumped over the wall, ran right into the police. So he's arrested. He's going to be taken off to be executed, tried and executed. Uh, and they put him on a train. 
Now, this is where one of the major sort of ambushes happen. So Dan Breen, Seamus Robinson, and Sean Tracy, three lads, try to devise a plan to break him out. Now, this guy's under heavy guard in an armoured train going up, taking the train line up past a place called Knock Lawn. Okay. Uh, which is the train going sorry. from... Where's it going to? It's going to Dublin? Yeah. From where? From Tipperary. Okay. So the train was going from Tipperary to Dublin. Yeah. Right? So, and it was ambushed. What, what was the area like where it was ambushed? Uh, Knock Long was just a, a stop-off point where they had to refuel. Oh, so they waited till it stopped? They're yeah. Pretty smart. Pretty Not smart, like the yeah. old west where they're running alongside. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, so, um, basically, the, 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 um, they ambushed the train. Now, there's there's two trainloads of soldiers in this, uh, in this scenario. Basically, it was a fray. Sean Hogan managed to escape. Sean Tracy was shot through the face, uh, right through the jaw. Uh, he got through, shot through the face. Dan Breen got shot through the lung and oh. had a closed pneumothorax from that and was given the last rites. Right. And they escaped off. Uh, essentially, everyone thought Dan Breen was going to die. He didn't. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he just pulled through. Walk it off. Walk yeah. it off, yeah. yeah. Exactly. They recuperated for a while and then they tried to make their way through Tipperary and back up to Dublin because it was getting too hot for them at this mm-hmm. point. There were wanted men at this point. There was huge bounties in all their heads. Mm-hmm. Now, Dan Breen kind of, accord, uh, kind of had similar views to hiding in plain sight as Mike Collins did. He kind of also realised that the RIC at the time were people who really desired respectability. They love people who are in the upper echelon society. And part of that was Giannisio Priest. So he would dress as a priest mm-hmm. as a, a way of getting through Tipperary. Mm-hmm. He, he, at one point, anecdotally, he went up to a RIC police station, literally turned into the police station, I've got a puncture on my bike, would you mind fixing it? Mm. While dressed as a priest, you know? Yeah. It, it, <coughs> excuse me, it's funny because when uh, when I was at Sear School, and, you know, Sear School is survive, escape, resist, evade, and they're talking about being captured and escaping and all that, and they always say, and it's kind of old school, but they always say, like, if you're, if you're out and about and you're trying to maneuver, don't don't be like running and hiding and stuff. Being and and assume an identity, assume a role. Like even if you carry a shovel, you look like a man on his way to work, as opposed yeah. to just walking somewhere, right? But like, you put that priest thing on, and again, because they were so revered at that time, you you, you assume an identity where people don't give you a second look. Mm. It, it's but it takes some cojones to oh, go yeah. up to the police station yeah. and ask for uh, yeah yeah that, that's awesome yeah. yeah so I mean like and, and Dan Breen to be honest yeah, I mean like a lot of doors were closed to these guys at this point because yeah. you know there's I've seen a wanted poster of Dan Breen yeah was that from later no that was from that time because he had a kind of a distinctive face that you would yeah. recognize I think oh yeah yeah, yeah. They, they actually describe it kind of not that not, not in a nice way a sulky bulldog look, a bulldog look. <laughs> he did have a little yeah, bit yeah, of it. yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, they said like a, like a laborer coming home from our day's work <laughs> <laughs> but you juxtapose that to Collins one and it looks like a tinder profile mm-hmm. it's like it's yeah. like uh, roguishly handsome uh, you know <laughs> all this kind of stuff on it you know yeah, yeah. I don't know uh, they're mm-hmm. kind of hard and Dan Breen there you know yeah but yeah. um no i uh, know essentially though uh, uh dan breen it, it also formed dan breen's uh, opinion of the clergy as well like the catholic church came out very harshly on dan breen for those murders mm. uh, and so dan breen for a very long period of time was fairly atheist he just mm. had no time for the catholic church because mm-hmm. he says if you're saying i'm going to hell for this so yeah. I have no regrets on, on killing well, these people. You know, you know, I don't want to bash the Catholic Church here, but they they had some skeletons in their closet too for at that time. Yeah. Horrific things done yeah. to unwed mothers and all kinds of stuff, you yeah. know. So, yeah, yeah, yeah um, people in glass houses, right? 100%. Um, and yeah. The, and look, I mean, if we're being honest, totally honest about it at the time, and I'm not running down the Catholic Church or anything of like that, but 
you know, they were fairly wedded to the British establishment in Ireland at the time. They were part of the status quo and the British made sure they were part of the status quo. Right. So and they, they were, you know, I remember that movie, The Field. Remember that one? Oh, yeah, Where yeah, Richard yeah. Harris says not one clergyman died during the famine. Yeah. Right. And they're, they're out scraping their plates and, and people are trying to eat scraps off their plates. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't a holier-than-thou organization. So mm. condemning Dan Breen, and yes. then I, I would take that with a pinch of salt. If yeah, exactly. I was Dan Breen, yeah. Yeah, and, mm-hmm. and Dan Breen did. Like, he, he said, uh, you, to paraphrase, you're probably going to see the clip of it, but he said, like, uh, you said you murdered so-and-so and so-and-so. He says, yeah, all killings murder, and I make no apologies for it. Yeah, yeah. You know? And it, it actually was very probably very rare at that time because the Catholic Church, it, Catholicism was so hammered into you as a mm. young person in Ireland, especially way back then. People dare not go against the Catholic Church. Yeah. And, th- and, and that they held that grip for a very long time, even up when, when I was a kid. And it only they only kind of lost it there. Very recently. Very recently, right? With all that, that sexual assault and all that kind of stuff to yeah. come out through uh, the Catholic Church. But uh, back then, they really did control every aspect of Irish culture. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I mean, like uh, a big part of Dan Breen's outlook probably is also partially because he's part of the IRB. And if you were part of the Fenians, the IRB, the Catholic Church didn't like you to begin with. Mm-hmm. So anyway, Tipperary was getting a bit too hot for these guys. So once they recuperated, they maneuvered their way up to Dublin, where they met with Michael Collins. Mike Collins kind of liked what he saw with these people. Mm-hmm. These are people he could use effectively. So he co-adopted them into the squad, the crack counterintelligence unit mm. that was designed to wipe out British intelligence in Dublin. Now, the first mission he put them on was to kill the Viceroy in Dublin, Lord French. They came really close. Uh, they got a bit of bad intelligence, but it was basically a mixture of these Tipperary men and um, people like Vinnie Byrne from the squad. Mm. Uh, they threw a Mills grenade uh, at the first car, which Lord French was in, bounced off, went to the second car, missed him. Mm. And so, again, things are getting pretty hot, but Collins put them good to use, wiping out G-Squad different British intelligence units in the, the capital. And again, this is very up-close urban guerrilla warfare. Where were they getting their intelligence from? Because it's obviously very good. Yeah, so so Collins, basically the first thing Collins did when he got out of Frongok was create a network in Dublin. Because uh, he realised that's where the, the war is. So that's kind of like... And he also created a network in London as well. So he sent an IRB guy, Sam McGuire, hence the name of the Sam McGuire Cup, mm-hmm. the GA. Oh. He, he was a Protestant man, an IRB member, and uh, intelligence officer for Mike Collins. He put him in London. So he's getting intelligence from London, but he's also getting intelligence from the source in Dublin, in Dublin Castle, and in um, the, the head of the RIC uh, Metropolitan Division. So he had a source in Dublin Castle. That would be like having a source in Langley, in yeah. the CIA headquarters in Langley, right? Yeah. Wasn't like... Was it a relation of his? He had a female who worked there as as an agent, right? Yeah, he had a couple of females, but he also had a couple of men as well. Uh, Women would predominantly be used to ferry out messages because Mm. they wouldn't be less likely to be searched. Mm -hmm. But the guys who would be collecting the information, people like Nelligan would be one, Dumb Castle, and another person who is in the Metropolitan Police Station, their counter-terrorist group, would be a guy called Broy. Mm-hmm. And they'd be getting intelligence from them. The yeah. Viceroy that they tried to kill, what yeah. was his role? Lord, uh, Lord French. Yeah. Well, he was basically a big policymaker in Ireland. Mm. And, and when, when it was the, the, the war was coming to a head, like just to give you an idea of how much of a, a hawk this man was, he was advocating for aerial strikes and uh, chemical warfare. So really? he was talking about mustard gas wow. and stuff like that. So, yeah. you know, they wanted to kill him. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, and you know, it makes sense. Yep. Yeah, yeah he voted. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, like, and again, uh, the the interesting thing about it, if you listen to Dan Breen, and 
you listen to these old IRA people, there's not a real huge difference between them and the provisionals later on mm-hmm. with mindset. It's just a war. You, they're not mm. humans, they're targets. I remember you said on, on a previous podcast that the, the Irish people now, they look at the the War of Independence with rose-colored glasses, yeah, like yeah. informants weren't shot, the people weren't tortured. Like, this yeah. is, it all comes in the package, right? It's yeah. all part of the, the product, yeah. of, of especially of a guerrilla war like that, right? Yeah. Well, but yeah. that's kind of been lost to history. A lot of those details, in, in, in a different way than it was, it wasn't lost on, on the the more recent struggle mm-hmm. in Northern Ireland. Well, even I was kind of shocked sometimes because I, I remember I worked for um, a great, a really great fellow, a guy called Professor Tim Lynch, neurology professor in the Matter Hospital, mm-hmm. and his grandfather was Finn on Lynch, an IRA guy, but he, he he sided with Collins later on and became very respected member of society and all that. And so you just don't really associate. Mm. him with heavy hitting kind of stuff but he was due to be he, when he was uh, arrested after his role in 916 he was due to be executed right after De Valera was supposed to be executed mm-hmm. so he was fairly high up but when you listen to him talk he just says oh we just had to go out and rub out a few of these guys yeah. and he yeah. just a matter of fact says they were targets we had to hit them and that's life mm-hmm. uh, and um, you know if you play that recording and you didn't know what time period it was you'd say that's a provisional IRA member yeah exactly you know? Yeah, or any any military-minded person, really. Mm-hmm. So D- Dan Breen, he wasn't part of like the Twelve Apostles, or, or he, he was. He was brought into it. Was he? So, so, yeah. so like the squad was the squad, but he was brought into it, mm-hmm. and he really became because they were full-time operators, mm-hmm. and they had nowhere else to go. So I mean, like, was he one of the guys who who hit the Cairo gang? Well, this is interesting. So. His thing came a little bit before the Cairo gang. So Cairo, well, tell me what the Cairo gang was. Yeah. So, so this is where it gets kind of there's there's familial ties with a lot of these things as well, you know. So, uh, to give you a little preamble before the Cairo gang, basically Dan Breen was like the boogeyman at this point because he had a face to mm-hmm. to, uh, to basically to show people he was being put down for every single killing by the IRA. Right, yeah. So there was a killing out in Cork of a, a Colonel Smith. Now, Colonel Smith was a military man. He was brought in to head up the RIC in Cork. Now, Cork was under martial law at this time. And we talked about this in our, our podcast on Tom Barry. He had a very infamous speech, the RIC inspector. He said, the more you shoot, the better I will like you. Mm. And, you know, civilians will be shot, but, you know, such such is life. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. um, and no one will be brought up in an inquisition or if, uh, if you kill a civilian. So... Basically, an IRA member called Sando Donovan tracked him down to a country club and walked in and said, your orders were to shoot on site. You're in my sights now and riddled them. Mm. Now, they blamed that on Dan Breen. Mm. So, Who was 100 miles away yeah, or more. Yeah. He was, he was mm-hmm. in Dublin at that time, yeah. killing off intelligence yeah. uh, officers. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is the British said, OK, we're going to set up a special operation group to wipe out heavy hitters, known as the Cairo Gang. So they were intelligence-led at the time, I suppose, elite mm-hmm. uh, soldiers. And their role was to kill prominent political figures in Sinn Féin, but also to sort of close the net on people like Collins. But the person who signed up for that was the brother of Colonel Smith, George Smith. He came from a duty out in either it was Mesopotamia, Iraq, or Egypt to come over and join what was going to become the Cairo Gang. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they started tracking Dan Breen. And the Cairo Gang basically tracked him down to a small little place not too far from where I lived when I was going through college in uh, Drumcondra in Dublin called the Fernside. Now, unbelievable shootout takes place here. It's an early morning raid. They come in with carbines, machine guns, grenades, 
and they try and kill where Dan, uh, Dan Breen and Sean Tracy were sleeping uh, in a small little room together. And essentially, Dan Breen has two Mills grenades and a, revol- uh, a revolver. Uh, Sean Tracy has a Parabellum automatic. Sean Tracy basically and Dan Breen lob grenades down the staircase, killing several soldiers, open fire, and then try and retreat. They jump out of the second story window, go through a glass house, barefoot, get fairly badly injured, and Dan Breen lands right in front of George Smith. And George Smith's like, well, my day's come, my, my revenge is here. Dan Breen shoots him right in the face. Mm. He escapes. Bosey say, look, we'll make a rendezvous uh, together at the Republican Outfitters. This is a small store, uh, kind of like a drop zone, because they figured they'd probably be surveilled and they didn't want to lead them to anyone important like Collins. Right. So Dan Breen makes his way off. Sean Tracy makes his way off. Dan Breen's actually too badly injured. He relies on the help of uh, a local nearby and he eventually through secret uh, basically the local want to turn him in to the police mm-hmm. but a woman who's staying in his lodging says I'll report you to Mike Collins if you do that this guy then ferries him off to the Matter Hospital the Matter Hospital had a secret network of operating rooms for the IRA at the time really and mm-hmm. he was operated on he was shot multiple times in the spine mm-hmm. uh, throughout his is a um, Basically, he he had had another punctured lung. He'd been shot in the stomach. He'd been shot in the spine. He was undergoing surgery. How do you recover from a spinal injury? I, I don't know. I can't, you're a doctor. <laughs> people, I some, thought that was a no no well, brainer. Like, some, like some, some people are just built yeah. differently. I mean, some, uh, you'd be surprised how resilient the human body can be. Yeah, yeah. Now, interestingly enough, I mean, like the person who actually helped him was executed just on the spot by the British. Well, that, that was that was my next question. Yeah. Like when people turned these guys in, was it? It's pretty a mixture, right? Of reward and fear of retaliation if you helped them, right? Because yeah. the British would come in and kill everybody. Yeah, uh, yeah. If if you if you helped them, but then you know we talked about rose colored glasses. What happened to people who turned in people, right? Oh, yeah. When and they found out that yeah. you helped the British, right? So that's a whole nother yeah. kind of dirty area. dirty area. Yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, okay. like. Internal cleaning in those um, organizations yeah, is yeah, brutal. You know? Yeah, it is. And they, they tend to take an approach of better safe than sorry. Yeah, right. And like we said before, you don't have a jail to put no. them in, so you do one or the other, right? Yeah, um, Unle- unless there's uh, unless you've got someone who's high value that you want to trade. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, true. Um, so he, he obviously was in the matter. You probably worked in the matter. I did, did yeah. yeah. I saw the room. Did you really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It it's probably no, hasn't been upgraded like the rest no, of the matter no, hospital. No, no. So there, there's the old matter and there's the new matter. Yeah. The new matter is um, immaculate. Like, you know, it's got yeah. all this yeah. high high scale intensive care work and all the rest done. Yeah. But the old part of the matter is like a throwback to the 920s. I you bet. Still, you still have some wards there, but it's mainly offices now. Yeah. But you can go down to the old operating room. A friend of mine, a, a, yeah. a historian in Dublin, Lorcan Collins, showed me where it was. And yeah. Was pretty Does it have, it probably has the green lino on the floor. Yeah, and the white, yeah. Like the St. Brickens Hospital. I don't know if that's still there. That's oh, the, for the army. That the, was the, the army, army hospital yeah, yeah, where there. I did my physical and all that. <laughs> and it was old. Like that had not been upgraded in a hundred years. I guarantee you. Yeah. That's probably gone now, is it? Probably. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So he must have been in, in the hospital for a little while. He was. Now, so it's it's kind of interesting. He um, he woke up and the first thought he had is like, what happened to Sean, my best friend, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. The second thing he felt was what was under his pillow was a little 
baby bottle of Powers whiskey that Mike Collins had slipped under his pillow. Mm. He went in to visit him, see if mm-hmm. he was all right when he was under, and just slept him a bit of whiskey. It's medicine. Yeah, exactly. It's medicine. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it's disinfectant. Alcohol, <laughs> you know? um, Way to perpetrate the Irish stereotype, right? Yeah, there, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, like, but mm. the one thing that's really important about Collins, despite him being the most wanted man in Ireland at this point, he was still on the field. He was yeah. still going in and checking in on people. Mm-hmm. He, he basically the reason why his intelligence was so good is that he could second. Second, it wasn't second hand for him. He could check it himself, you know. Yeah, yeah. Now, Sean Tracy, unfortunately, different story. So Sean Tracy went a different route. He was badly injured himself, but he went to the Republican Outfitters. Now he was being surveilled. For, he he tried to lose his tail. He's that being, was the rendezvous point. That was the safe house they were supposed to meet at. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and there's about. Three days he was... Was it, I'm sorry, was it a store or was it... It was a store. It was okay, people yeah. could go in, drop things off and leave. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, now, he was going up to this place. He realized he's being surveilled. He'd been purposely delaying his movements for about three days. But two two men, surveillance team, were following him. And he's coming up to the store and he could see reinforcements had been called. Now, what do you do in that situation? It's, you're not going to win, so you might as well take a few with you. Mm-hmm. So there's a very famous photo of one of the intelligence officers drawing his pistol. So I posted that. Yeah. And it is that a live photo? It's a live photo. It is, because somebody put a comment and said, that's not a live photo, it's a reenactment. No. But that's on my Instagram. It's an insane... He's pulling a Webley yeah. and he's shooting and it's caught perfectly. Yeah. yeah. So D- Dan Breen had a parabellum on him. He grabbed the first intelligence officer, plugged him, used him as a shield. Dan Breen or oh, uh, sorry, Sean Tracy? Uh, Sean Tracy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Plugged him, used him as a shield, shot the other fellow who you can see Pulling, right. pulling a rifle. Yeah. Now the was there? How was there a reporter there? Was there? So, th- so this is right outside of Republican a very well known spot. Yeah. So it just have to be lucky on the mm-hmm. day, uh, photojournalist. Mm-hmm. Now, what happened right afterwards was that there was infor- reinforcements there, so his fate was sealed. Yeah. They opened with a loose machine gun mm-hmm. uh, on him. They killed two of their own guys, uh, and uh, I think a civilian as well, and. And Sean Tracy. Mm. So about five or six people were dead at the end of it. Mm. And you can see the photo of him just lying out in the street, right. riddled, you mm-hmm. know. Uh, Dan Breen was very badly affected by that. He was mm. genuinely hurt mm. by this whole situation. He recuperated, got back into the fight, again, working for Collins, but also heading back to set up a flying column in Tipperary. So like a, a guerrilla unit. Like yeah, a hit and run unit. Hit and run unit, mm-hmm. yeah. Now... It's quite interesting. This kind of coincides with the lead up towards the um, the elimination of the Cairo gang. So, as you know, almost run like clockwork, Mike Collins synchronized the execution of 14 intelligence officers in the early hours of the morning in Dublin City. Now, that base effectively blinded British intelligence. Mm. It was a massive blow. These were their top guys. Mm. So automatically all their contacts all the agents they were running ran for cover behind Dublin Castle mm. this is the first time in hundreds of years people were using basically medieval ramparts to protect themselves you yeah. know, from the natives yeah the um, the intelligence was phenomenal right? that was a simultaneous hit on all of them at once and, yeah. and we talked about this before but there's a great video of Vinnie Byrne talking yeah in probably in the 60s or something and he was one of the hitmen and he yeah. was like I went upstairs and I kicked the door in and I said may God have mercy on your soul I plugged them you yeah, know? yeah 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 um, yeah yeah, but to be able to hit 14 agents all at once yeah. and shut down intelligence, that, that's an insane... Like, this stuff, I'm surprised there wasn't more movies made about this because this yeah. is like the Godfather-type hits, yeah. right? But yeah, but yeah. way cooler. <laughs> yeah, but the amount of uh, logistics and everything else to plan yeah. that, mm-hmm. immense. Yeah. Now, the British overreact, as they always do. And we, we mentioned this in previous podcasts. What follows this 
is what, what is now known as Bloody Sunday, the mm-hmm. first Bloody Sunday. Mm-hmm. And this isn't out of keeping with British tactics because something similar happened in India at the time called the Amritsar Massacre, mm-hmm. uh, where they just opened up on general public. Now, they opened up on the general public. They killed about maybe 13, 14 people in the stands. Yeah, they drove an armoured vehicle That's into right. the football game. That's right. A yeah. Gaelic football game and just opened up with the machine gun. Yeah. That's right. And, and it's really important to note that this wasn't the auxiliaries. This wasn't the Black and Hands. This was regular uniformed British Army mm. who are supposed to be in, you know, in the mythos of the, supposed to be held to a high standard. Mm-hmm. right? But, you know, people are playing for keeps and this is a collective punishment. Mm. Uh, one of the people they, ki- they, they kill is a temporary football player. Tipperary was playing at the time. This is the home team of Dan Breen. Mm. And they line up all the Tipperary players and they perform a mock execution. Mm. And if you go through a mock execution, your nerves are shot. Mm. After you've seen one of your teammates being murdered in front of you. Uh, and one of the guys wanted to get his own back called Tommy Ryan. Important point to note. He goes to Dan Breen. Dan Breen says, okay, well, I'm going to take a break from my from the unit up here with regards to counterintelligence work. I'm going to bring you back down to... South Tipperary and we're going to set up a flying column and we're going to hit them hard. So that was really his goal for a period of time. Mm-hmm. Again, we're coming towards the end of this, the, the, the war of independence, coming up to the truce now. And, and Dan Breen's shocked when he hears Mike Collins agree to the truce. Because again, bear in mind, I, I, and again, this is my own opinion. It's not fact. It's not history because we don't know what would have happened. I have a strong suspicion that Collins agreed to the truce but he would have attempted something like the second Tet Offensive. Like he was very close relations with Northern IRA, mm-hmm. like with the heavy hitters. Just talk about what the truce was. Oh yeah, so the, yeah. The, the truce was essentially a, um, an agreement, basically recognising it was a military stalemate between the British and the Irish, and that a um, there would be a cessation of violence, uh, that the Irish would be allowed to have some form of govern- governance, self-governance, and there would be partition. Uh, and the partition would basically be uh, the northeast of the country. So six counties out of the nine counties of Ulster would be kept under British rule. Now, that was done for a couple of reasons, predominantly because people would say that they were, uh, it was a huge loyalist enclave there and their loyalties were to, to Britain. But then again, Dublin was also a loyalist enclave as well. Mm. I think the real reason they went for it was because economically at the time, it was quite a powerhouse. You had shipbuilding, Mm. you had textiles, all that kind of stuff. So financially, it was a good idea to hold on to that part. And they were kind of assuming that with economic sanctions that they put on Ireland later on, that the Republic would collapse and they would have a foothold there. So eventually it would become reunited Mm. again, but under British rule. Yeah, yeah. Uh, That didn't happen. Mm. Uh, Coincidentally, the Republic actually got very, very strong over a period of time, and once we got economically liberated by joining like the EEC and getting the euro and so on, our, our economy took off. Right. You know? Yeah. So the 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 British basically pulled out of the south of Ireland and created Northern Ireland, which yeah. is still part of England today. Yeah. yeah. And uh, the the Republic of Ireland got independence, but mm. a lot of people were not happy. They saw it as Colin selling out the North, right? Yes, mm-hmm. and, and it was not only that, but. At the time, we still had taken oath because we weren't fully independent. We hadn't fully gotten the republic we wanted. We were kind of in um, a Commonwealth status where, essentially, we still had to make an oath of allegiance to a king. Right. So a lot of guys were saying, "I killed a lot of people not mm-hmm. to do this." Yeah. You know? I th- I think, you know, I've heard before, Collins saw it as a stepping stone. Yeah. Right. And that that's accurate. And he was a very yeah. practical guy. Yeah. Like he, I I genuinely believe, considering the correspondence between him and Northern IRA at the time. He would have gotten the weapons and he would have had the second Tet Offensive. Right. He would have pushed in on the north. Mm-hmm. Of course, that didn't happen. Mm. A civil war took place. 
And Dan Breen took the Republican side. Now, Dan Breen, while he was an ideologue, where he wasn't like 100%, if it isn't the 13 criteria to make this a fully independent republic, I won't go with it. He just felt very strongly on it. And he obviously had gone through all that trauma, all through that war and lost his friends for it. He mm. said, I'm not going to settle for anything less. Right. Now, he was half-hearted to say the least with regards to the war, uh, the Civil War, because very shortly there was an incident where he led an ambush on the Free State uh, Army that, that had taken place, basically the IRA that had sided with the treaty. Mm-hmm. And who was leading it? But Tommy Ryan, the guy he, who had survived Bloody Sunday, who he'd brought down and gotten into the IRA, and he just couldn't kill him. He was yeah. about 40 yards away from him. His carbine was raised, mm-hmm. and he just said, I, I'm, I'm going to surrender. It happened quite quickly, too, right? You, you have the pro-treaty people, mm. and then the anti-treaty people who wanted to keep fighting, basically... And it, it was very, it's 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 very hard to look back on stuff like this in hindsight and just believe it because now we, we all fought together and now we're killing each other. Yeah. You know, a couple of weeks later we're at each other's throats and we're murdering each other on the side of the road, right? Yeah. Very difficult. And if the treaty was already in place and the British were already, what what did they hope to accomplish? Were yeah. they trying to reverse it? Were they just so pissed off that they wanted to kill the people who, who signed it with the treaty? It's hard to understand that mentality yeah. right now. I, I think, honestly, uh, I can't speak for everybody in this, obviously, but I think a lot of people sided with what their OC decided with. Really? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, like, their officer, their, their commander. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people went along those lines. But there were people who were genuinely felt very strongly ideologically. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, I mean, like uh, the counterpart to Collins is often thought to be Eamon de Valera, but in reality it was someone called Liam Lynch. Now, a good friend of mine wrote a book, Jerry Shannon, an excellent book on Liam Lynch. Just recently came out. It's fantastic. Mm-hmm. But um, Liam Lynch famously says, that we have declared for an Irish Republic and we'll live under no other law. Mm-hmm. And basically, even when people experience people like Tom Barry and Dan Breen were very much like, you know, we don't want a civil war. And they were trying their best to, to keep things together. Th- that that sort of friction just was going to lead to conflict. And I think the British were kind of betting on that too. Mm-hmm. They gave the weapons to the Free State Army for that reason. Right. Now, it's all said and done. Basically, when Liam Lynch died, the Civil War wrapped up fairly quickly after after that, you know. Mm-hmm. And Mike Collins also died. So two of these prominent leaders, two mm-hmm. very, very effective guerrilla leaders were killed off in this war. Mm-hmm. And, and so the, the Republican movement for that period of time was fairly disheartened. And, and Dan Breen did what a lot of people did. He moved to America. And like, mm. what's a soldier to do when he goes to America? He'd already been there before for gun running and fundraising. Mm-hmm. And he met with a guy called McGarity out there in uh, Chicago. Uh, so he was encouraged to set up a shibin. You know? What's a shibin? Shibin is an illegal drinking joint. Mm. Kind of like a speakeasy. Mm-hmm. And during that time it was prohibition. So yeah. it was a speakeasy. Right. And he came into direct conflict with who other but Al Capone. Right. Uh, and there was supposed to be, now anecdotally, there was a conflict between Al Capone and Dan Breen. Now, Dan Breen, all his guys were IRA men. Yeah. They're all like hardened yeah. killers. And Al Capone said, like, this town is not big enough for both of us. So, uh, and Dan Breen was pretty resolute in staying there for mm. quite a while. But he got a call from Eamon de Valera. So Eamon de Valera was president of Ireland. And he also was the leader of the Fianna Fáil party, uh, the, the political wing of the anti-treaty IRA. Mm. And at the time, it was a very revolutionary party. It was it, Sean Lamas, who was also a member of the squad who joined Fianna Fáil, said we are the barely constitutional party, mm. which means we still have that sort of 
you got the whiff of cordite about you. Mm-hmm. You know, like we, we, we killed a lot of people and we're going political now, but yeah, f- for our purposes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they enticed Dan Breen back. And it was a big selling point because they had to get all the other IRA men on side. And if Dan Breen goes in uh, into politics and he takes an oath of allegiance, other guys will follow. And, and to be honest, in some ways it did work because they overthrew the oath of allegiance. They got, they put in the groundwork so we could be an actual republic removed from the Commonwealth mm. and be an independent country. Mm-hmm. Now, um, Dan Breen, you know, was attracted also to uh, some of the revolutionary aspects of Fianna Fáil at that time with regards redistribution of land. So a lot of land was left over from huge landowners and that was redistributed amongst the Irish people. Mm-hmm. So being from a very poor tenant farming background in, in South Tipperary, that was pretty appealing to him. Like Dan Breen, you know, after the war, life wasn't particularly kind to him. I mean, he, he politics wasn't for him. He wasn't really a politician. Yeah. He left, he was fairly penniless and he sold his autobiography, which was My Fight for Irish Freedom. And that put money, that was a lot of the sales went to keeping him afloat. Mm. Very, very interesting book. And if I encourage you to read it uh, if you're interested in Irish history. Because uh, it really is a first-hand account of what it's like to be on the run. Mm. Uh, and like, Dan Breen married a woman during the days he was on the run. Uh, a woman called Bridget Maloney. She was uh, a Dublin Common Amon member, which is a female version of the IRA. And, uh, you know, they had their wedding when he was on the run, there's a great photo of them together. There's kind of a mischievous smile on them because mm-hmm. there's about 60,000 people looking for Dan Breen and here he is in a townhouse mm-hmm. having a wedding, you know. But unfortunately, I, and I think a lot of people didn't recognize that people had PTSD back then uh, and they didn't really recognize that Dan Breen was kind of suffering quite a bit. Mm. Was so he the, a drinker? Or was it, That that was mm-hmm. a problem. Dan, yeah. Breen, Dan Breen drank quite a bit. He, he, he had this... I'm sh- he probably had this loss of sense of purpose, right? Because for so long he was so focused. Mm. And then all those memories were compartmentalized. And yeah. after it all ended, they came flooding back and alcohol makes it worse, right? It We've worse. seen it, this play out time and time and again um, with, with military people. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, um, and, you know, honestly, some of the people that he could have, like, there, there were people who were in the IRA with him, right? But they weren't the people who were in his unit. And they couldn't, He his closest friend, Sean Tracy, was already dead. He couldn't yeah. really relate to anybody. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, he fell out with his wife and um, he didn't really have much hope, but he kept in touch with his children, had a very close relationship with his children, wrote some lovely sweet letters to them, if you, mm-hmm. if you ever pick them out. But essentially, you know, he died in 1969 and um, he did an interview shortly before where he just basically details mm-hmm. his life. And it, you'll see the clip there. And he said, you know, he doesn't regret what he did. Mm. Even if people call him a murderer, he says, I'm, and he said, I'm saying that in the winter of my years to any man or God. And, you know, he stood by it. He was a soldier till the very end. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Pretty impressive guy, man. Pretty, um, but it's funny how after it's all over, mm. a lot of these guys end up penniless and, and yeah. kind of lost. There's, there's a, if you read the book, uh, Say Nothing about Northern Ireland, that whole thing, there's one of the main characters in there, Brendan, oh, what's his name? He was one of the main guys in the IRA, and he ended up in Divis Flats, yeah. broke, smoking, drinking, yeah. Yeah. Um, miserable at the end when it yeah. all kind of uh, wrapped up. Sad that. I mean, the uh, same thing happened with a lot of the members of the Cork IRA that Tom Barry fought with. A lot of them mm-hmm. had to emigrate to America. Yeah. To, to, 
They like, had no uh, place in a peacetime Ireland. Yeah. No, mm-hmm. and I think Dan Breen was genuinely upset because before he, he died before the Troubles kicked off, mm. and partition was very much a big thing. There wasn't really much prospect for um, reunification at that point. Yeah. So he felt it, it had fallen far short from the Republic he wanted. Right, yeah. Um, yeah, probably in the, in the 20s when, you know, the Republic was created, you know, they hoped that it would eventually join with the Norton. When it, yeah. it goes to the 30s and the 40s and the 50s and the 60s, he's like, this yeah. is never going to happen. And, you know, yeah. it's, it's funny because, like, when you see uh, Tom Barry talk about the Troubles, mm. like, he's, he, like, he doesn't necessarily agree completely with the text of the Provisional IRA, but he's like, it, the only way this is going to end is if there's a reunification. Mm-hmm. And so he's, like, I mean, these guys, doesn't matter how old they get, they're still soldiers. Yeah. And they still have that mindset where it's like, you know, yeah. there's only one outcome here. Yeah, yeah. Like, um, um, uh, I do, I do think it's interesting you mention that because, like, you know, uh, a loss of purpose is a big thing for these guys. Yeah, yeah. And you see it, you see it with veterans of modern wars too. You know, no, you, you absolutely do. You know? It's, 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 it's amazing to think about Dan Breen's life when he's born in the eighteen nineties, right, yeah, to yeah. sheer poverty, and died in the nineteen sixties, yeah. late sixties, yeah. and what he had seen in that time, and how much Ireland had changed in that in that period. Yeah, pretty amazing story. Mm. Uh, what's what's his autobiography? My fight for Irish freedom. Okay. Yeah. Have you read yeah. that one? I have. Yeah. Yeah. It's very interesting, and it goes. It, it'll give you an idea of how close he was with Sean Tracy, and how devastating it was when he died. Yeah. Yeah. Um. He doesn't, and you you'll note he doesn't go into the Civil War much because it how much it hurt him. Right. Like, yeah. You know the the moment where he was forty yards away from killing the young fellow he brought into the IRA. Yeah. And at that point, he, he surrendered. Even though he had the drop in him, he surrendered. Mm-hmm. He said, I don't want to do this. Yeah. 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 So yeah, reluctant yeah. fighter. All right, Oshin, thank you so much. That was very, very interesting. Right. I like that. And maybe when you go back to Ireland, we'll do a Zoom call and we'll do some more. But right, uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, we'll see. But uh, thank you for coming in. And uh, yeah, appreciate it. Right. All, All right. Best. Thank you. Bye. Slow on, lads. Mm-hmm.